Good morning. So uh, originally, Pastor Tim had asked me to fill in this morning because he thought his flight was going to fly out in the morning. Uh, obviously, it's not because he's here. So, uh, so he'll be able to just join us this morning, which is exciting. It's kind of like teaching when the principal's in the room. So we're continuing our... Uh, for those that weren't here when I preached last month, I'm trying to find my spot here. Uh, for those that weren't here when I preached last month, I am, I'm actually preaching through the book of First Peter uh, just because I fill in from time to time. So it's nice for me to just know what's what's the next thing, uh, the next verses that we're going to cover. Uh, so based on my infrequency of filling in for Pastor Tim, we are continuing our five year study uh, through the through the book of First Peter this morning. Uh, So last month, uh, when I filled in, we covered uh, the first half of chapter one. Uh, So if you weren't here for that one, I'll kind of give a quick uh, quick little brief overview uh, before we get into the second half of first Peter. Uh, The main takeaway from that first part of first Peter is that God has made us alive to a living hope. That is what we look forward to, that living hope being resurrection, eternal life uh, with him one day in the new heavens and the new earth. So Peter starts out his letter with that, uh, uh, explaining this to the church, that that we have been given a living hope. And then we're going to see where he continues on from there. Uh, But I'd like to read uh, the the scripture this morning that we're going to be in, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get started. Uh, We'll be picking it up in uh, verse 13. So this is 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to the end of the chapter. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to To each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Father, we thank you this morning that we can come into your house, that we can gather as your children, that we can gather as your church uh, and worship you through song uh, and to hear your word proclaimed. Father, we thank you for the gift of scripture that you've given us, uh, that we can study about you, learn more about you. But ultimately, Father, we thank you for the gift of salvation through Christ's blood. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. So, as I said, we're continuing through uh, our five-year study of 1 Peter. And uh, this is building off of 
the, the first part of the chapter. So as we were studying through uh, the first part of the chapter last month, we rejoiced in verse 3. Verse 3 says that he has called us, caused us to be made alive to a living hope. That he has made us alive. That is exciting. That's something to rejoice in. We gather this morning and sing praises to God because he's made us alive. Spiritually alive to him. So now what? We've been made alive. Now what do we do with that? So we're going to look at three things this morning. uh, And they should be there in your bulletin listed as the three main points. What do we do now? What is our motivation? And what is the outward sign? So these are three questions that are going to be answered in this text this morning. So as we think about what do we do now, uh, we've been made alive. So what do we do now? Do we just sit back and bask in the glory of being made alive? Do we just sit back and relax and say, thank you, God, for making me alive and just just appreciate being alive and glorying in being alive? I mean, those are good things to do and we should do that. And we must be thankful for the salvation that God has given us. But it's more than that. It is so much more than that. We have been given the gift of salvation, and now it's time to use our freedom in Christ for good works. Now, this is a theme that runs throughout the New Testament. Uh, I'm reminded of passages in Ephesians 2, where uh, Paul, as he's writing his letter to the Ephesians, describes our state without Christ, that we're dead in our sins, and God makes us alive, and he makes us alive to do good works that he's established for us, that he's set aside for us to do. So we see it in Ephesians 2. We see it in James 2 as well, that famous verse that if you, that faith without works is dead. That if we have faith, that there are works that must follow after that. And we're going to see it this morning in this text, that we see that there's the command that God gives us to be holy. Because we are saved, We will be different, and that should be evident to others. But maybe you're wondering, I thought uh, last month, you know, when you preached on that first part of this chapter, you talked about sanctification, and we did talk about sanctification, and I talked about that it was a process, that we're saved, and then that God is sanctifying us through this process of sanctification to turn us into the image of his Son, who is perfect. But yet we see here that there's a command to be holy, which is a set-apartness, which is the other side of sanctification. So which is it? Is it a process or is it being set apart? It's actually both. That our sanctification is a process, that, that it is a process that we are being sanctified, but God has also, in saving us and in justifying us, he has set us apart to be holy. So it's both. We live in the tension between them. That, that tension that we feel in life, as Paul describes in Romans, where he doesn't do the things he wants to do and he does the things he doesn't want to do. If the Apostle Paul is, is wrestling with this in his life, how much more so average Matt <laughs> or any of us sitting here this morning, that we're going to be wrestling with this tension within us that we are set apart to be holy, and there's this process that we go through. As we talk about being holy, and again, this is kind of all part of the introduction. Don't worry, point number two in the sermon's pretty short, so we'll make up some time there. Uh, but I, I want to kind of lay the groundwork for where we're at. 
Because when we talk about being holy, we're not talking about some type of Catholic understanding of what it means to live out our life, that we're trying to earn our salvation, or even that, that, uh, that mindset that has crept into the evangelical church, uh, where we're kind of earning our salvation, that, that we're not doing these things that we're not supposed to do, and we're doing the things we're going to do, and, and in some way that that's earning favor with God. So we're not talking about anything like that. That's not what this passage is talking about. That's not what historic Christianity has talked about. And hopefully these two terms will help kind of set this in context for us. Um, Sometimes we use big terms around here. Sometimes we don't use big terms around here. Uh, It's good to use big terms, and it's good for us to all know what we're talking about when we use these terms. So the first term is the indicative, and the second term is the imperative. And it's imperative that you understand the difference between the two. And hopefully that's a clue in case you're wondering what it means. So there's the indicative and the imperative. We see this theme throughout Scripture as well. The indicative is what God has already done. That Christ died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. This is what God has done. This This is something that He has already established. The imperative is what we do in response to that. And we'll see throughout Scripture, and especially in this text, that the indicative always comes first. That it's always what Christ has done first, and then it's our response. So in this passage, we have been given a living hope, and now we live holy. Going back to Ephesians 2, it's there too. The indicative that God has made us alive to do good works. The indicative of what Christ has done and then the imperative of what we do in response to that. James 2, it's in there too. Faith without works is dead. Faith comes first and then works. It doesn't say uh, works that doesn't produce faith is dead. That's not what James is saying. He's not talking about works to produce faith. It's not works that doesn't produce faith is dead. It's faith without works is dead. So it's important that we understand which comes first. That it's God as the initiator. And then our response to it. So what does our text say today? We saw, as I said earlier, beginning at the first part of this chapter, that we have been given a living hope. That is something that we have received from God. It's something that he initiated that we have been given a living hope. What's the first verse, or the first word in the first verse today? Is therefore. Therefore. So this brings us to our first question. Therefore, we could say today, now what? It's kind of the same. So now what do we do? What do we do now? We are to be holy. That God has done this, and now we will do this. So he starts out in verse 13, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded. So what he's saying that preparing your minds, that could also be translated, gird up your loins, which was I was kind of chuckling on the inside when we were talking about in Sunday school this morning because we talked about this. I'm like, oh, they're going to hear it again. Uh, But guarding, uh, preparing your minds for action or girding up your loins. For those that weren't there in Sunday school with us this morning, 
Back in the Old Testament times and in the first century, men wore robes. So if they wanted to run somewhere, which didn't happen very often, or if they wanted to fight in a battle, they would have to gird up their loins. They'd have to pull up their robe and tuck it into their loincloth to prepare for action. It's a similar thing that we see in Job when God says to Job, prepare for action like a man. And then God continues his discourse of of how powerful he is. It's that same imagery. So what Peter is telling the first century church here and what he's telling us today as he prepares this discourse of being holy is that we need to think about this. That this is something that we must be that we must think about and that we must be self-controlled. Here it says being sober minded. A lot of times today when we think of sober, we think of it in the context of drinking alcohol. Those that drink alcohol are not sober. Those that do are sober. Um, This context here is much broader than that. Uh, Sober minded is just about being self-controlled in all areas of our life. So he's telling us to think about this and to be self-controlled. And to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, reminding them that our hope is in Christ, that living hope that we received And he is connecting that to thinking about it. So he's telling the first century church to think about these things, that our hope in Christ is not some ethereal, uh, wispy thing up in the the clouds uh, that we just kind of hope in and kind of wish it will happen, kind of like we hope our favorite football team wins the Super Bowl or we hope our favorite politician gets elected or we hope in all of these things here on earth that we have little to no control over. The hope that we have in Christ is a concrete hope founded in his word. And we can put our faith and trust in that. And Peter's reminding the first century audience and ourselves that that is what our hope is in. That our hope is in the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He goes on to describe them as obedient children to not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Uh, The other thing that he's setting this stage up uh, into before he goes into being holy is reminding them of where they were. Ignorant passions. I don't think that's something that I would use uh, in talking to my own children. And yet God uses the word ignorant when he talks to us. Not because he's an abusive father, but because he's a loving father and because he's reminding us of where we were without Christ. That us following our passions, us following our sinful nature that is, that is in us from the time we're born is ignorant. Those ignorant passions that we've had before Christ came and before the Holy Spirit came and lived within us and changed us into the image of uh, Jesus. So he, he talks about our ignorant passions So we're not to be conformed to those. We're supposed to be changed. But as he who has called you to be holy, and here it is, you also be holy in all of your conduct. So we're not to be ignorant like we were, but we're to be holy like God is. And in the text here, he continues to say, as it is written, be holy for I am holy. Peter is quoting Leviticus 11:14. In, Le- in Leviticus 11:44, I'm sorry, 
In Leviticus 11.44, it says, Consecrate yourselves and be holy, for I am holy. So we see that same imagery, that same wording in Leviticus as we see here. Consecrate yourselves. Here we see, prepare your minds for action. To be holy, for I am holy. Now, I don't know about you, but the bar is starting to sound pretty high. Like when I think about my Christian life, I, I think about usually it, in times I'm like, well, I'm, I'm kind of better than that guy over there, I'm kind of better than, you know, th- that person over there. And and that's not that's not what God has called us to. I mean, that's sinful. Na- that's that's still the sinful nature in comparing myself to other Christians. God has set the bar much higher than that. You're not supposed to compare yourself to others. You're supposed to be holy as God is holy. In this passage in Leviticus uh, and throughout Scripture, there's kind of two meanings when we see God's holiness. I mean, even, even the word holiness is, is just in hearing that word is such a grand thing that is sometimes hard for us to understand. So there's a primary meaning when we see holiness in Scripture, and it is that apartness or otherness. So that God is so far above us, so far apart from us. Now, that's not to say that he doesn't have a personal relationship with us because he does as his children. But God, as the creator of this universe, is so far apart that it's hard for us to understand. The secondary meaning is that God's pure and righteous action, because God is holy, He is both great and good. There is no evil mixed in with his goodness. When we are called to be holy, it does not mean that we share in God's divine majesty, but that we are to be different from our normal fallen sinfulness. We are called to mirror and reflect the moral character and activity of God. We are to imitate his goodness. So when, it, when Scripture tells us to be holy, it's telling us to imitate God's goodness. And this is what God is commanding us to do. He wouldn't command us to do something that we weren't able to do. That would be unfair. And God is not unfair. He is perfectly fair and perfectly just. So His commandment to be holy is a commandment that we can and must obey. The text continues on and it describes him as our father. Uh, And if you call on him as father, this is verse uh, 17, who judges impartially according to one another's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. I mean, we've talked about this before, that God is our our loving Heavenly Father, and we love to think of Him as our Father. I mean, don't we? We love to think of God as our Heavenly Father who cares for us and provides for us. This text is also telling us that He is our judge. That's a little little less uh, exciting to think about. We love the concept of God as Father, uh, we love the fact that, you know, we think that he's just going to give us everything we ask for, which we know is not always the case, not always true. 
But to think of God as judge is a very different picture. If you call him father in this text, as we see here, then you're also acknowledging him as judge. If we pray, just like I did at the beginning of the sermon, we pray, Our Heavenly Father, we're also acknowledging Him to be the judge. And this is all wrapped up in, in this picture of holiness that God is calling us to. If you think about it, uh, is, this, is this expectation that far removed from those who are parents? I mean, we kind of expect our children to act like us as well. We, we raise them to act the way we do. We want them to obey us. We want them, when I ask them to go do something, uh, to clean up their room or to fold laundry, or, or if their mother asks them to do that, we expect them to obey. That, that's an expectation that we, uh, that I as an earthly father have for my children How much more so our Heavenly Father has that expectation of His children as well. Moving on. So what do we do now? We be holy. Point number two. What is our motivation? You know, when we think about... I did a lot of theater in college. Uh, and, and kind of one of the key phrases for actors and actresses are, you know, the director will tell them to do something. Now, you're going to go through this door, and then when you get there, you, you know, I want you to act this way. And the actor will say, well, what's my motivation? You know, it's kind of this very melodramatic, dramatic, you know, well, what's my motivation to do this? Help me have my motivation to go through this door and act this way. So the director will, you know, kind of give them some pointers. Okay, this is, this is your motivation in this scene. So when we come to this text, what is our motivation for being holy? The answer is the gospel. The gospel is our motivation for being holy. Now, usually sermons like to end with the gospel. You can ask Pastor Tim. That's kind of the climax that we always work up to. And then we end with the gospel, the good news. This is all the bad news. Here's the good news, the gospel. But the text puts it in the middle. So we're going to address it in point number two. And we'll uh, talk about other things on point number three at the end of the sermon. Our motivation is the gospel. So he continues on in this passage. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, but with silver or gold. So knowing that we are ransomed by Christ. That is where Peter directs us back to where he talks about that we're supposed to be holy for God is holy. What is our motivation for being holiness? What empowers us to be holy? The fact that we're ransomed by Christ. That's the indicative. The indicative of what Christ has done. Knowing that we are ransomed by Christ, by his blood. When we think about ransom, uh, you know, if if you've seen movies or you've seen uh, news footage about uh, hostage situations or kidnappings. Somehow the police always get a, a direct line to the kidnappers and then they talk to them about you know, what their demands are. You know, usually there's a ransom that's expected, a large sum of money, oftentimes a helicopter and maybe a boat to get away, some type of transportation, but money is always involved. They're always doing this to gain money. When it comes to us being ransomed by Christ, 
What does God's word say? Not with perishable things such as silver or gold. That we're not ransomed by worthless things like silver or gold. The way I'm ransomed to God is through Christ's precious blood. That Christ had to come down to this earth and live a perfect life and die in my place. The most awful death in all of history. There is nothing more gruesome and no more excruciating way to die than to hang on a Roman cross. And that's what Christ came and did. That he shed his precious blood for those who would believe in him. There's no greater motivation than that. Why are we to be holy? Because we've been ransomed by Christ's blood. The perfect blood of the Lamb, without blemish or spot. For the first century, this would have connected them directly to Old Testament sacrifices, specifically the Passover lamb, that perfect lamb that had to be slaughtered and the blood put above the door and on the sides of the door so that the angel of death would pass over. These are the images that a first century Jewish person would be understanding as they're being read this letter from Peter. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So this is Peter talking about Jesus. And we talked about this last, um, last month when we were looking at the first part of Peter's chapter. That this foreknowledge is, isn't just that God knew. That would, be a, that would be a redundance. Of course God knew. Of course the Father knew the Son before the foundation of the world. They were in perfect relationship. So this foreknowledge isn't just an, a head knowledge. That this was an intentional mission that was established before the foundation of the world, that the God, the Father, and God the Son, and the God the Holy Spirit had this plan to save a people unto themselves. And this plan was in place before the world was ever created. That this foreknowledge of God was carried out to perfect obedience by Christ on the cross. That that was His mission and that's why He came. Just as a side note, we see here that it says uh, that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. When you see that word last times, that actually does actually mean last times. Um, so just kind of as a side note, uh, this last times that, that Peter's talking about here is actually end times. The word means the same thing. And that the last times were happening as he was writing this letter to the first century audience. That from the, from the time Christ came in his first coming and until he comes again, we are living in the last times. So we are living in the last times. They were living in the last times. When this letter was read or to the original audience, they were in the last times. That that timing is imminent. That we don't know when Christ is coming. He is coming again and that is our, that is our living hope. But this is something that he's laying out. If you have any questions about eschatology, Pastor Tim would love to talk with you at length after the service. <laughs> um, but I just wanted to point out the fact that, that it is important for us to understand that there was this understanding of the last times 
in that first century church, just like we have an understanding of the last times. It's not reading the newspaper in one hand and Revelation in the other and trying to see if they, may, if they meet and what's happening in Russia right now and does that affect end time stuff. That's all. That's all. <laughs> that can be very confusing. What our hope is and what the hope of the original audience is when they're reading this letter is that our living hope is in Jesus Christ who is coming again. We don't know when, but we know it's happening, and that should be all that we need to understand. That's all that we're hanging our hope on. We're not hanging our hope on what events have to take place in order for other events to take place because we know that that's going to happen. There has to be a progression of events, just like when Christ came the first time. There had to be a progression of events to happen for him to die on the specific day that he was supposed to die. That's the same thing that's going to happen into the future, but our living hope is just in the fact that Christ is coming, and that is our certainty. So that our faith and hope are in God. So we see as as Peter continues, uh, as he continues writing to the first church, that was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So we see that God raised him and gave him glory. That Christ did not stay dead, that he rose again. He ascended into heaven and he's now seated at the right hand of God the Father in full glory and majesty. This is Peter's assurance to his, his uh, audience And this, again, is an indicative of what God has already done. That he has already raised Jesus Christ, that Christ has already ascended to heaven, and that he's glorified and that he's reigning right now. That is the indicative. So that your faith and hope are in God. And there's the imperative. This is what's already done. This is how you respond to it. Because this is a certainty. Because Christ has been raised, your faith and hope are in God. So what is the outward sign of this? So we've talked about the the command for us to be holy, but what does it look like to other people? It looks like brotherly love. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So now that our souls have been purified, and our souls being purified is what Christ does, that he comes in and washes us and purifies us as we're being sanctified, but we are purified by God. So we've been purified by our obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. And he specifically lists brotherly love. This is the love that Christians have for other Christians. He's writing this letter to the church in the first century. It's being received to us in this century. A letter to Christians about brotherly love. Now that's not to say that we're not supposed to love un-Christians That's covered other places in God's word. So that is a fact as well. But what he's specifically addressing here is brotherly love, 
a love that Christians have for other Christians. Christ, you know, love that we should have for each other in this church. And it is a moral purity through the gospel. That the gospel comes in, the gospel changes us, that we are made new in Christ, and because of that, because of that, we can actually be morally pure. All the time? Not all the time. Hopefully, more morally pure today than we were last month, or last year, or the year before that. And this is, when we, this is that sanctification that is a process. That we are being changed and made into the image of Christ throughout our lives so that my life today as a Christian should look very different than my life ten years ago as a Christian. Because if it doesn't, does that mean that that my flesh is, is, is able to overpower the Holy Spirit that's living within me? No. That the Holy Spirit is going to be doing His work and that that work is going to reflect in a different Matt now than Matt was 10 or 15 years ago. Is that progression going to be the same as at the same rate or the same speed or the same consistency as another believer? No, because we're all different. But there has to be change. There has to. Because of the Spirit of God that lives within us. It comes in, the Spirit comes in when we repent of sin and believe in Christ. That once we're saved, that that repentance that we have, that acknowledgement of our sin and belief in Christ is what changes us. And being purified enables Christians to show genuine love for God's children. That if I try and manifest love out of my own strength for another believer or for another person, that love will get twisted, often gets twisted. It turns into manipulation. It turns into, well, I'll love them because I'm going to receive this from them. Um, The motives of love can get very convoluted. But we can be assured that our love is pure because of Christ's work on the cross and the spirit that lives within us. So we're purified by God and that enables us to love with a genuine love. He continues on and says that we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. So we've purified our souls by obedience to sincere brotherly love And we're supposed to love one another earnestly from a pure heart, which God wouldn't command it if we wouldn't be able to do it. So we can love one another with a pure heart. Since you've been born again, so there's the imperative and the indicative, not of perishable, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So a lot of commentators have equated that perishable seed that we see here to procreation. So that the fact that when we're born, we're born in perishable seed. That we don't have, that we as humans don't have the ability to give eternal life to our offspring. 
that our children won't be, live eternally because they were born by me, or I won't live eternally because I was born by my parents. So that perishable seed is all that we can give. But that imperishable seed is from God, and that is the gospel. That the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and the change that happens with, within us when we believe, changes us to imperishable that we will live eternally with Him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. As we wrap up this morning, we see there's, there's still a couple verses left here. Here Peter's quoting Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 40. That all flesh is like grass and all of its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. It's the reminder that life is brief. That our life, our time here on earth is short. But the good news is that the word of God endures forever. That no matter what happens, God's word endures forever. And this word, the last verse of this chapter, is the good news that was preached to you. This word is the gospel that was preached to you. That all of our hope and all of our assurance and all of our faith and all of our trust is in God and the gospel that He has established. So usually sermons end with application points. You know, a list of things to do or to work on. And Pastor Tim, I'm sure, can attest to this. Application is always kind of a tricky thing. Because as this text shows us, that, that there are things that we must do as Christians. There are, there are things that we have to do. However, we don't do them to earn salvation. But I don't do these lists of things. I don't, I don't check off the application points this Sunday and come back next Sunday feeling better about myself because I've done that. We don't do them to earn salvation. They are the fruit of our salvation, which is a free gift from God. We did not earn salvation. We weren't smart enough to figure out that we needed salvation. But God, in his sovereignty, chose us and saved us by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. As we continue through 1 Peter and and, uh, probably, I don't know, next summer when Pastor Tim's on vacation, we'll get into chapter 2 and... And then maybe the summer after that, we'll get into chapter 3. Chapter 2, he talks about being holy. Again, what does does it look like to be holy people? Chapter 3 talks about wives and husbands. That'll be a tricky one. Maybe Pastor Tim will stop taking vacations by then, and then we won't have to cover that chapter. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. We'll talk about it because it's in God's Word. Uh, But we'll talk about wives and husbands. Chapter 4 talks about using our gifts to serve one another. And also how to suffer. Chapter 5 talks about elders. What does it look like for elders and pastors to shepherd the flock? So the rest of the book is going to be very practical and full of application. Which focus on the imperatives of scripture. But it is built on the indicatives of scripture. Of what God has already done. Our love for others and our obedience to God flows out of what Christ has already finished on the cross. 
Father, we thank you this morning for the truth that we have from your word. Uh, we thank you for uh, this command. It's, it's very difficult. It's challenging to, to be holy like you are holy. But we thank you that you've given us your spirit. That you don't command something of us that we can't do ourselves. Father, we just ask that your spirit would work in our hearts. That you would convict us of sin. That you would challenge us. That you would encourage us. And that you would remind us that we are your sons and your daughters because of Christ's perfect death on the cross. Father, we thank you. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for bringing us into your family through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.
We're going to pass out the bread first, and we would just ask that you hold on to it, and uh, we'll take it all together.
continue. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's give thanks for the cup. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for your shed blood, which is symbolized in this cup, that you poured out your blood on the cross. And we remember in the scriptures it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so we praise you uh, for this, and we thank you so much.
today. We thank you that we could come this morning and sing praises to you. Father, we thank you that you are holy. Help us to follow you in obedience through the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.